following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, the last time I preached on this pulpit was on December 29th. Uh, it was about four months ago, and it was the last Sunday of 2019. And the message that I gave was entitled, Why Sunday Worship? Question mark. Why Sunday Worship? And I know many of you were missing due to the holidays, but if you were here, you might recall that I spoke on the importance of corporate worship, um, and that is gathering together as God's people. And I opened with this video uh, about this concerning trend called uh, the virtual church, where instead of physically going to church, um, there's a growing number of people who are opting for this church online experience from their homes. And in less than 100 days of preaching that message, the entire world has shifted to virtual church. And um, this is a picture of our sanctuary now. This is my view from this pulpit. Yes, my, my worst fears have been realized. But, um, you know, in all seriousness, if anything, doing worship virtually over these past six weeks has really stirred in me just a greater longing to be with you all together again, worshiping with you in this, in this very room again. Uh, you know, I, I closed that sermon with this picture of our church, and it's a photo of us during our Christmas service just a few months ago. And this has become one of my favorite pictures of all time. And I think it's because I, just seeing the joy in your faces as we celebrated Christ's birth in this room, you know, as a pastor, it was just so rewarding. And, uh, you know, this right now, this is not at all what we expected, right? When we took that picture just a few months ago, we were all in a very different place. Most of us were not at all worried about our jobs or our financial situation. None of us were worried about being within six feet of another person. Maybe, maybe not all of us. None of us fathomed becoming homeschool teachers overnight. No one could have known that toilet paper would become the hottest commodity on the planet. You know, a couple weeks ago, I saw a meme that said, I gave up a few things for Lent, but I wasn't expecting to give up this much. No one did. In the blink of an eye, God has stripped us of all of our creature comforts. He's exposed all of our insecurities and disrupted the regular rhythms and just all sense of normalcy in our lives. You know, the Apostle Paul, I believe, experienced a very similar season to us. Actually, I think it was, it was, it was far worse. It wasn't a shelter in place that may amount to a few months. It was imprisonment which lasted for a few years and in a Roman jail with the specter of execution. And, you know, at that time, Nero was the emperor, and he was a vicious ruler. And if you were a Christian in a Roman prison during his reign, your mortality rate was exponentially higher than COVID-19. And Paul found himself in this unexpected season of house arrest despite his own best laid plans. And, you know, he had very noble plans. 
He had plans to continue on with his missionary journey. He had plans to visit all the churches that he had planted throughout Europe and Asia Minor. He had plans to do the Lord's work. And yet here he sat in a dark Roman jail. And how do we make sense of that? How did he make sense of that? What is God up to? You know, I think there's so much that we can learn from his experience and his outlook that is instructive to us. Paul was able to take this very unwelcome disruption in his own life, and he was able to trust the Lord. And in those quiet years of house arrest, God revealed some incredible things to him that he would now go on to relay to the rest of the churches that he had planted. They were known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. Can you imagine the New Testament without those letters? And I want to share with you this morning from one of those letters. It's probably my favorite, actually, Philippians. We're going to look at chapter 1. And I want to turn our attention this morning to verses 12 through 30. And, you know, the ESV study Bible footnotes this section of verses as Paul's reflections on his imprisonment, which I think this makes a, a, just a great and very relevant sermon I've edited the title slightly to Reflections Under House Arrest. Because I think that's kind of where we all are right now. You know, we're all dealing with this unexpected season of house arrest in our own ways, aren't we? Some of us are pouring into our children and their e-learning, and we're trying to find constructive things that they can do at home. Others of us are just knocking off all the shows that we wanted to watch on Netflix or binging on K-drama. Some of us are using this time to acquire other skills like cooking or knitting or baking or cleaning our spaces and completing home improvement projects. So many of us are doing things that we just didn't have the time to do before. But how did Paul redeem his time of house arrest? What did he discover about God? What did he learn about the purpose of his life? And what would he share from those discoveries with the ones that he loved so dearly? You know, I believe this text answers all of those questions. But the main point I want to make today, which I hope we will remember not just for this season, is this. We lose faith in God when life does not unfold in line with our plans. But nothing can stop God's greater purpose for this world. And we have a choice to either rise up and partner with him in the work that he is doing or just sit idly by and live for ourselves. Let me say it again. We lose faith in God when life does not unfold in line with our plans, but nothing can stop God's greater purpose for this world. And we have a choice a choice to either rise up and partner with God in the work he is doing or to just sit idly by and live for ourselves. You know, Paul had a very unique relationship and a profound affection for the people of this church in Philippi. It's very obvious when you read this letter, and I want to just unpack a little bit of the history of this church so that we can better understand why he felt this way. You know, he planted this church around AD 50 during his second missionary journey. And this is about 12 to 13 years prior to the date of when he would actually pen this letter, the letter of Philippians, to them, which was likely around AD 62. 
And you know, I was thinking about that, and ironically, this means the church in Philippi, when Paul writes to them, is almost exactly the same age as our church at Emmanuel. You know, we planted this church in 2007. And the birth of this particular church is so fascinating to me, and you can read about it in Acts 16, where we learn that Paul's plans were to head north and then east after his first missionary journey. And, you know, Paul thought, this is what God wants me to do. And so, but while en route, before entering Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that this is actually not God's plan for him. He receives a vision of a man urging him to come to Macedonia. And in obedience, Paul reverses course, and he heads back, or heads west, towards Europe. Now, on this new route, he would come to a town called Philippi, which was in Macedonia uh, in Paul's day, or modern-day Greece today. Philippi was a Roman colony that was strategically located on this major trade route known as the Ignatian Way. And this made it very important to Rome, and the people took great pride as a Roman colony of their Roman citizenship and and their status. And so when Paul first enters Philippi with Silas, they cannot find a synagogue there, which was their normal practice, Uh, because there just weren't enough Jews in that city. And so on a Sabbath, they go out to pray by a riverside, and they encounter a group of women led by a merchant named Lydia. They preach the gospel to her, and her entire household is baptized, and they end up staying with her. And some believe this is where the, uh, the Church of Philippi would meet. And not long after this, while on their way to pray again, they encountered a slave girl who was demon-possessed, but she had these fortune-telling abilities. And they exorcise this demon out of her, but her owners are furious because the slave girl was basically their retirement plan. They were making money off of her. And they lead the charge in getting Paul and Silas beaten and put in jail. And, you know, later that night, Paul and Silas are singing and they're praying in their cell. And there's an earthquake And all the prison doors are released, but they actually never leave. Why? Because God wants them to witness to a Roman jailer who's about to kill himself upon realizing all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul stops him, witnesses to him. And just before he's about to kill himself, and his entire household is saved. And this whole story, this whole birth of this church is like this series of unfortunate events and disruptions. And yet God is clearly working in it. And we begin to understand as this story unfolds why it is that the Holy Spirit redirects Paul to Macedonia. So this church in Philippi begins with this eclectic kind of hodgepodge of disciples, group of disciples that no one would have imagined. It's a group of, of Gentile women led by Lydia, a suicidal Roman jailer, and in all likelihood, a formerly demon-possessed girl. This was God's idea of the perfect church-planting launch team. And, you know, they were, they were a ragamuffin group, but they loved Paul. And Paul loved them. And they were his most faithful supporters emotionally and financially. He was their spiritual father. Now, fast forward a dozen years later or so, Paul again finds himself in prison. But now he's in Rome. And these dear friends 
of his are worried about him, which is why they send one of their own, Epaphroditus, to send gifts and support and an update from their church to Paul. And they're worried, not just for Paul, but they're worried about themselves. They're worried about their future, which was uncertain as Paul's. They're worried about the suffering that they were enduring as well. And everything that they had staked their life on, the gospel now seems to be in jeopardy, especially with their leader's imprisonment. You know, there's quite a few verses uh, here in our text today, but instead of reading through the entire text at once, I'm going to break it into smaller sections as we work our way through it. And I know it's taken me a while to get to the text, but we will move through it fairly quickly um, here. Beginning in Philippians 1, verses 12, I want to read this for you. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's just so good. This is how Paul essentially opens his letter to the Philippians. And, you know, if, if you cut the head off of any living thing, it will quickly die. The Romans knew this, and they knew that Paul was the head of this early church movement. They knew that Paul was its greatest missionary. And at this time, he'd already gone through three missionary missions. And so I'm sure they believed, if we just contain this guy, this little fad called Christianity will just quickly fade away, like all the other startup religions before him. But when we read these verses, ironically, we realize that it, that is not at all the case, is it? Paul is so eager to share with them, his church in Philippi, that he can barely get past his initial greeting before telling them in verse 12 that, you know, contrary to all their assumptions, his imprisonment has not stymied the progress of the gospel at all. It has had the opposite effect. It has exploded it. And as a direct result of the house arrest, the gospel was now reaching people that they would have never dreamed, including the imperial guard of Emperor Nero himself. Not only that, he joyfully tells them that his imprisonment has ignited a boldness among the believers in Rome who are now sharing their faith without fear. His God-given courage has now become their courage. And Paul is telling his discouraged friends in Philippi that one of the first things that he has learned under house arrest is that God's greater purpose for this world cannot be frustrated, no matter how bad things may seem. What a good word for us today. God's greater purpose for this world cannot be frustrated by anything. So don't become discouraged by what seems like a detour from your grand vision or your plans, no matter how God-honoring you think and you believe that they are. Paul had his own plans, as did the church that he was writing to. But God had a different plan. It was a good plan. And Woody Allen said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. God has a long history of working unconventionally in both who he uses and how he uses them to accomplish his will. And the Philippian church was a living testimony of this. 
You know, and that God would work in this miraculous way really should not be surprising to this church. You know, Paul, that Paul found himself in a jail cell really should not discourage them either. I mean, this is the very church who, through a miracle, was born really out of a jail cell. But that's just like us, isn't it? We forget that God did the impossible in bringing us to him. And we need to trust that he will keep us in him as well, no matter the circumstances. You know, it's discouraging that we cannot meet together in this season. I really do miss worshiping with all of you. But I am continuously amazed these past few weeks at how God is using this disruption to open people up to the gospel in ways that I've never seen before. I'm amazed at how God is using this season to give people newfound courage to share their faith in ways that they never did before, in our own church even. And I'm amazed at how God has stripped all the unnecessary, frivolous distractions in our lives and forced us into communion with one another to spend quality time with our families and our loved ones in ways that we just couldn't make time for before. See, God is at work. And we need eyes of faith to see it. And Paul wants his friends to see it too. And in verse 15, he says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. You see, God's greater purpose for this world cannot be frustrated by removing God's greatest missionary. Nor can it be stymied by other Christians, whether they work with sincere or with selfish motives. And I love Paul's reminder here. I love his attitude. We need to be focused on what God is doing, not so much what God's people are doing. Don't get caught up in that. And I see it all over right now on social media and in the news. Uh, You know, Christians and churches are everywhere. And it's not necessarily in good ways whether it's defying orders to stay at home or congregating for worship and, you know, really deeming that as persecution, whether it's making statements of how this pandemic is a sign of God's judgment for this or for that, or using the season to build a political platform or or push an agenda. And, you know, it's sad. Christians have become known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. And I'm not saying that none of these things matter. But we need to stay focused on what God has called us to be for. And that is the gospel. To proclaim and to partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not getting caught up in the ministries or the motivations of other Christians or other churches. And some may have good intentions and others may not. But God will still move the ball forward. And we can rejoice in that. Our job is to just trust that he is at work and to stay focused on his greater purpose. And this is what Paul discovers about God in prison. Now, what did Paul learn about the purpose of his life in this place? Isn't that what we all want to know? 
Well, the next few verses tell us what Paul discovers his life purpose to be. Verses 19 says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, that's, you know, that's so great. You can really sense Paul's struggle here. He knows what his desire is. It's to just be with the Lord Jesus. And yet he knows that if he dies, others will suffer. And, you know, I think our desires are so much more carnal, so much more selfish, aren't they? You know, the truth is, as long as we have high-speed Internet, as long as we have Netflix and Disney+, Plus, you know, we can stave off our greatest fear, boredom. You know, and we, we don't have to suffer. And I wonder sometimes, like, wh- what would this all look like right now if we were shelter in place without the Internet? But look at the heart of Paul here. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That is far better. Paul knew that his life was at risk, but he didn't fear death. He even welcomed it because it meant more of Jesus. For Paul, it was so simple. To live was to live for Jesus. To die only meant more of Jesus. So what's the struggle for him? It is only a hard decision because of his love for others. So hard that he says he felt hard-pressed. And these words remind me of Jesus wrestling with God, the Father, who's calling him, what, calling him in his last days in Gethsemane. Jesus is wrestling in that place. Gethsemane literally means wine press, where grapes were crushed and wine is produced. But in his wrestling, we see Paul he's able to come to terms with God's calling in his life. And that calling is this, as long as he has life, he is to pour himself out for others, including those in Philippi. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, Paul says. Convinced of this, I know, I now know that I will remain. I will continue with you all. Why? For your progress, for your joy in the faith. Paul sets aside his own selfish desires in prison, and we see Paul embrace God's great purpose for his life, which was that through him others might know Jesus 
and grow in Jesus. And that's what life is all about, people. That is our purpose, too. As long as we have life and breath, we are called to love and to serve and to be hard-pressed, to be crushed even and poured out, to give our lives as a, a witness and as an offering for Christ and to be faithful to that gospel. And in the season of solitude, how have we come to terms with this, with our greater purpose in this life? Are we so consumed with worry that we just look for other avenues to assuage our fears? Or are we so consumed with worry that all we can think about is ourselves preserving the life that we had before this pandemic? Or are we able to look beyond ourselves and see that the fields are ripe? The harvest is so ripe right now. In house arrest, Paul learned more about God and God's purpose for his life and God's calling on his life. And now it's really no surprise that in the verses to come that he shares that same purpose and that same passion that he desires for them, his beloved friends in Philippi. Verse 27, chapter 1 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul calls his friends to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The Greek here can also be translated as behave as citizens, citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is reminding his friends, look, we, we are citizens of heaven, not earth. This world is not our home. We have an eternal future in a heavenly home that awaits us, and we need to live here and now like we truly believe that is true. And when we go out of town, you know, when we book a hotel room, we will unpack our clothes. You know, we will unpack our toiletries maybe. And, but we don't just, you know, we don't run to Ikea or Crate and Barrel and think about how we're going to furnish our hotel room. We don't invest a lot of time and energy into decorating our hotel room because we know, we know we're, we're just there temporarily. And yet most of us live life on earth the opposite way. That, you know, this is what it's all about. I'm going to invest everything to make this place as comfortable as I can. And look at where we are. We're, we're all uncomfortable now. You know, perhaps this pandemic has exposed how much we have actually invested on earth. And our fears now expose how afraid we are of losing it. What are you living for? What are you living for? 
The only way that we can live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is to recognize that this is not our home. This is not our final resting place. And our allegiance is not to anyone but Jesus Christ. And if we truly believe this, like Paul, the gospel will become our greatest purpose and our greatest passion in this life. And we will come together and unite in faith, not fear, not squabbling with one another, but as verse 27 says, we will stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we engage the world with the gospel together in unity and with boldness, not fear, we are doing it in a manner that is worthy of it. And this is a sign of our sincere faith in him. Verse 28 says this. And if we're not experiencing any hardship or persecution for our faith, then if it costs us nothing to follow Christ, then I think it's fair to question whether our faith is truly sincere. And I know those are hard words, but it's right here in verse 29. Not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If you are a true follower of Christ, it is not a matter of if, but when you suffer for his sake. How will you respond to the suffering? Will you rise up with eyes of faith and see God at work and partner with him in that work? Or will you stand on the sidelines licking your wounds, focused only on how you will recover your losses and recapture the good life again? I saw a quote this week that said, in the rush to return to normal, use this time to consider which parts of normal are worth rushing back to. Yeah, I think that's a good word. And I think that's what God is calling all of us to. To dig deep, to reevaluate, to introspect. What is my life really about? What am I really living for? You know, in closing, I, I want to share a personal testimony. Um, this whole coronavirus experience is surreal in many ways, but it's also a bit like deja vu to me in some ways. Um, you know, if you've been a part of our church, you know this. I've, I've shared it quite a bit. But eight years ago now, um, my wife and I encountered a somewhat similar disruption in our lives when she was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma. And um, in one weekend, we went from living the good life to, is she going to live? It was that kind of a disruption. And I suddenly realized that I have no control of my life. I have no control over my wife's life or her health even. And I took eight months off of work. I burned through almost all of our savings And we walked through one of the most difficult seasons in our lives. And, you know, this Tuesday we'll be celebrating our 19th anniversary. Uh, And, you know, I'll be honest, there were moments in that season that I didn't think our marriage was going to make it past year 11. But during that time, we had so many people praying for us, and we could have have holed up, and we could have went into self-protection mode. We could have just suffered in silence. But, you know, in that season, both Kim and I just felt this strong conviction that even in the midst of all that was happening to us, God was at work. And, you know, to be honest, sharing my faith does not come easily to me. 
Um, but as much as we could, while we were fighting our own cancer battle, we tried to serve others. We tried to share our faith along the way. And we did it, you know, by starting a blog to share our prayer requests. And it became a platform to just share our faith journey through cancer. And I had, you know, many of my coworkers reading it. And, um, you know, we also organized drives to raise awareness for bone marrow registrations, especially among Asians, which is woefully low and inadequate. And so we had two boys that we knew personally that needed transplant. And we just felt like this was just one small way in which we could help them and serve them. And, uh, you know, we took every opportunity we could to share with the hospital staff that we saw daily about the hope that we have in Jesus. You know, we were in house arrest ourselves for four months during this intense chemotherapy. And during that time, we got close to a nurse named Kate, and she was a little bit younger than us, but we immediately made this connection with her, you know, because she was with us from the very start. And I remember, you know, the moment that the oncologist told us about the cancer diagnosis that first weekend. And um, after he stepped out, our nurse, Kate, she walked into our room. And she gave us both hugs. And she just sat on, on our bed with us, and she just cried with us. And, you know, Kim and I sensed that the Lord wanted us to share our faith with her. And we felt that was part of the reason why we were there. And so we did. You know, we, we talked very openly about our faith. We shared the gospel with her. We gave her the book of John. And you know, even though she herself said that, you know, she didn't consider herself a religious person, she was very open to just talking about faith and dialoguing about what we believe because she saw how real it was for us, especially in the midst of our, our struggle with this cancer. After Kim went into remission, I organized a surprise party um, for, Kim, for her with about 150 people. And, and I invited pretty much everyone you know, that locally who had helped us through our cancer journey to come. And these were coworkers who had you know, covered for me during my long absence. There were friends who left us meals, cared for our children. It was the hospital staff who served us, you know, believers and non-believers. And I wanted it to be a night of appreciation. But most of all, I wanted it to be a night where we could testify to God's mercy and God's goodness and share, again, about the hope that we had beyond cancer. And it was, it was an awesome night of worship. And I asked a few people to share that night, including our favorite nurse, Kate. And I want to close with just a brief clip of her sharing. So if you'll watch with me. my dissertation for my master's degree, um, which I thought was going to be the most difficult public experience I've had so far. But when Peter asked me to put something together um, to say it could be a surprise party, um, I almost admit I was really overwhelmed, but a lot of So thank you for asking me. Okay, I'm a nurse and I can't pass out. <laughs> so as a nurse, I see sick people every day. My job is to take care of them. Um, but every so often, I have the opportunity to encounter those patients and the families who end up nurturing and leaving a lasting impression on my heart. So, through their example of what's truly important in life. Kim was one of those rare patients, and, and their family that chose were one of those wonderful families. As doctors and nurses, 
which made me look at health crises like scientists. When I started nursing, I think it dawned on me that this clinical approach is really just a coping mechanism. Because too often I see patients and families inexplicably suffering, and through the lens of a belief in a higher power, it's very challenging to reconcile. Getting to know the chose, however, has really helped me to begin to see the beauty in this journey. Kim and Peter, your food is unwavering. From the moment I met Kim and Peter, I sensed there was something different about them. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew they were special. And getting to know them and finally sitting down and speaking with them on a personal level, Peter explained it. He explained that they themselves are not extraordinary, which I tend to disagree with. Um, but rather, it is the love and the guidance provided by their Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a difficult concept for me to grasp because I'm not a religious person per se. I wasn't raised that way, and throughout my busy adult life, I never truly needed religion as a guide. However, to see a family that is so comforted and supported by their religion truly moved me. I've been taught by them how enriching and fulfilling leading a life in Christ would be. Thank you for reopening my mind and my eyes. Okay. I'm not done. <laughs> and I am taking this. <laughs> including this celebration of Kim's wife. And like I said, profoundly humbled to be given the opportunity to work and take care of you as a family and share that experience with you today. As a nurse, I will always remember the gifts that Kim and the chose and still in me during the past four months. I'm looking forward to the wonderful life Kim will enjoy as a wife, a mother, a daughter, to all your cohorts and to all of you, and I'm also grateful for calling my friend. Kim, you're beautiful when I met you. You know, cancer was not a part of our plans eight years ago, and coronavirus isn't either. But I know what a gift that this season can be. We came out of our disruption with a much deeper love for God, a much greater hope in the gospel, and a much richer understanding of His grace. And it made, us, it made us want to share the good news. It made us want to share the gospel more and more. And I want to reiterate what Kate shared. You know, there's really nothing extraordinary about me or Kim. And I really believe that. Only that we know and love an extraordinary God who uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes, to do his work. And if you just turn to the Lord in this season, if you allow him to reveal himself to you, to reveal his will to you, his heart for you and for this world, then I think you will find that he is at work. And that nothing can stop him, not even a global pandemic. And he wants to use you to touch the lives of the people around you, your parents and family, your children, your neighbors, your circle of friends on social media. Social distancing cannot stop the gospel any more than putting someone in jail can. We saw that in Paul. So let us join God in that work. Whether it's telling your story openly, whether it's praying for others, 
whether it's giving sacrificially. These are all the ways in which the church in Philippi partnered with Paul in the gospel and ways that you can partner too. Let's hear the voice of God in this season. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our eyes to the work that you are doing in our hearts, in our church, throughout this nation and around this world. Even in and especially through this pandemic. And we pray that you would grant us the faith to partner with you in that work as your faithful witness. And that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who was the greatest example of someone surrendered to your will in humility and in love and in service to others. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do that work with a heart of love and with boldness. And so, Lord, we pray that we would surrender ourselves to you and to, work, and to the work that you want to do in us and through us. And it's in your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen.